This is Jill Doherty with a special announcement for Canonex listeners. Things are changing quickly in and around Russia, and to keep on top of that, we're revamping the Canonex podcast. Beginning in April 2022, you can look forward to new guests, new music, and new angles of analysis. But don't worry, I'll still be here as your guide on our never-ending quest to understand Russia, Ukraine, and the surrounding region. Watch for our Ken and X season premiere next month, when I'll speak with some of Russia's most talented journalists who are now working in exile after the Russian Federation shut down most independent media and passed a new law criminalizing reporting on Russia's war in Ukraine. I'll ask them how can they preserve that connection with the readers and listeners back in Russia, and what does this mean for the future of journalism in Russia? To tide you over until then, today we're sharing something a little different. The following episode is a re-release of the audio from a conversation on March 14th between Wilson President and CEO Mark Green and Baroness Catherine Ashton, the European Union's first High Representative for Foreign Affairs and Security. They discuss the impact that Russia's war in Ukraine is having on Europe, and Baroness Ashton offered insights from her personal encounters with Russian President Vladimir Putin. We hope you'll enjoy their conversation, and we'll be back soon with more Ken and Axe. Hello and welcome to the Woodrow Wilson Center series, Hindsight Upfront Ukraine. I'm Center President Ambassador Mark Green. Through Hindsight Upfront, we try to apply informed analysis and lessons learned in real time as history is being made. So far in this series, we've analyzed the history and policies leading up to Russia's invasion with top thinkers like Bob Zelik and Michelle Flournoy. We've looked at the regional response to Putin's early saber rattling with German Minister of State Linder and Turkey's ambassador to the U.S. We've analyzed American efforts at deterrence with policymakers on both sides of the aisle. You could see these interviews as well as a whole treasure trove of analysis by going to our website, wilsoncenter.org, Hindsight Ukraine. There you can access the great work by our scholars as well as some of these programs. Today we explore two key questions in the Ukraine crisis. In simple terms, just who is Vladimir Putin? And secondly, how has his unprovoked invasion reshaped European attitudes and policy? And we have just the right person to help us take these topics head on. Baroness Catherine Ashton is the Wilson Center's Bank of America Distinguished Fellow. She's the former Vice President of the European Commission and former High Representative of the European Union for Foreign Affairs and Security Policy and she has met face-to-face with Vladimir Putin as much as any Western leader. So, Baroness, Kathy, welcome back to the Woodrow Wilson Center. Thank you, Mark. It's great to be here. It's, it's, really, good to, it's really good to have you. So the question I want to start with, I, I read a piece in the last couple of days that said Vladimir Putin isn't mad, but he's angry. Do you agree with that? Is he mad? Do you agree with that characterization? So I think he's certainly angry. And one of the things that... I know about him is that he has 
always looked backwards to a nostalgia, to a time when, in his view, Russia was a, a nation that was taken more seriously, respected better, uh, and has regretted uh, and been angry about the fact that, in a sense, they've been sort of pushed into a corner and ignored. And he wants to see a great Russia again, and he wants that to be the legacy that he leaves behind. So his anger is about seeing countries around him that he believes should be either part of Russia or certainly look to Russia, making decisions about their own future that mean that they've chosen a different path. So definitely angry. So, uh, but he isn't mad. He isn't unstable. Is this a consistent theme in his uh, life and career? I think there's definitely been a level of consistency to this. What has happened over these years when we've had a pandemic that's meant people are distanced from each other, are not able to have the conversations in person that they did have to travel as they would have done? You know, there is a sense that leaders can lose touch with what's going on, can delude themselves that things are different. So it, it's not madness, but there is, in my view, a, a real possibility that he's not seeing the world as he should be seeing it, mm -hmm. but seeing it through a prism that he has chosen or that he has been uh, got himself into over these last years. So do you think he fails to understand the West or he does understand the West and he's afraid of the West? I think he's afraid of democracy. I think what he sees as countries move towards and choose a democratic future are the prospects of what that would mean for his own country and for his own position and for the people around him. He sees that that means a free press. He sees that that means a mixed economy. He sees that that means alternate possibilities for who could be elected to lead a country. He sees that as par parliamentary debate. He sees all the things that we recognize as the underpinning of democracy, the interwoven mesh from civil society to the way the justice system works. And I think he fears that. Uh, it's always difficult to separate fact from fiction and rumor and such. There are rumors, and, and we hear this even from well-placed officials in the US, that he has truly isolated himself from the West, doesn't even have a bank account and is uh, isolated from nearly every aspect of, of those tools, technologies, and freedoms that we associate with the West. Do you buy that? Do you think that's true? Well, officials in the administration know a lot. Uh, mm -hmm. And of course, you are getting intelligence all the time, including about what's happening with him. You know, it's not so unusual when you travel the world and meet leaders from different countries to see people that you can tell long ago forgot what it was like to drive a car or to use a bank account or to you know, buy something for themselves. So removal from the realities of day-to-day -day life is not such an unusual thing. And somebody with that kind of position, an autocratic leader, is perhaps going to be even more so. Uh, so when we look at the early steps that um, obviously from our perspective, the Biden administration, but that Europe took in an effort to deter, uh, were they doomed to fail? I mean, was this something that, that right from the get-go, Putin had his mind made up and it didn't really matter what the US or uh, what the UK and Germany and France did in terms of the economic sanctions, Putin was gonna be moving forward? 
I think it's pretty clear from what he has written and what others have written, including his foreign minister, that they were not going to be deterred by financial sanctions or economic sanctions, certainly in the beginning. Mm -hmm. I don't think they anticipated the strengths of those sanctions, nor did they expect the unity within Europe, the transatlantic relationship, and indeed across the world, where we've seen all kinds of uh, countries and organizations move to either suspend or remove their relationship with Russia. I don't think he anticipated that. And so we will not yet see the results of those sanctions because, as we know, it takes time for them to bite and it takes time for them to be really put in place. I think they will have an effect. So uh, maybe in some ways he confuses uh, Western chatter and debate and all that we all go through with weakness in terms of Europe pulling together and, and NATO pulling together. You know, there was uh, uh, something I read some time back that I thought was interesting. Uh, Margaret Thatcher, when she was asked about that succession of Soviet leaders and drop-off and Chernyenko and, and such, and the reporter said, are you saying that they're evil? And she's saying, no, not at all. It's just they have never experienced freedom. They don't understand freedom. And that's what happens uh, with leaders like that. Um, is that similar with Putin? Do you, do you think he doesn't understand that the debate that we may have is a sign of strength and not a weakness, that when moments arise, uh, catalyzing events like Putin's moves, um, we put things aside and join together? It's really interesting, you know, because when you talk to leaders, not just um, obviously the leader of Russia, you often find that they can't quite believe that the press is free. They assume, for example, that if they read something uh, in the Washington Post, that it's, it's bound to have been put there by the government. That if you watch something on television, that that's going to be a government message. It can't possibly be a message from a journalist on the ground who's telling it like it is. Or they will argue with you that surely you, can't, you can control your press. Uh, there's an expectation that if necessary, you can persuade the press to do what you want. Recovering politician, if only. If uh, only, indeed, if only. And so, you know, that's not just a problem for President Putin. It's a problem that I've encountered before in different parts of the world. There is a, a different mindset if you've not grown up with the kind of freedoms that we enjoy and occasionally endure right. uh, in our lives. Um, and I think it's hard to kind of relate to our experiences from their experiences. You often hear as well leaders say, yeah, well, that's okay for you, but that wouldn't work here. Right. And I suspect if you ask Russian politicians the question, that quite a lot of them would say, well, that might work where you are, but you know, look at what it can do as well. Not always good things, but it certainly wouldn't work here. So I've always thought that part of the reason why Putin has moved as he has really touches upon what you were just pointing to. So in the case of Putin and Russia and Ukraine, the argument that some Russian leaders may make, well, that's fine for you, but we can't have democracy here, it doesn't work, all of a sudden in Ukraine actually was working. And the fact that uh, markets and democracy works in a country on its border, that's a, that's a very dangerous, very potent um, pushback on, on Putin and his way of life. 
Do you think? Exactly That's right. Yeah. Exactly right. I mean, that, that I think is the analysis. I mean, there, are, there seem to be two elements that have particularly been uh, brought up as, as issues that he's been greatly concerned about. One is NATO and the assumption that if Ukraine moves towards the European Union, it will also move towards NATO because all those right. who were in the former Soviet Union who've joined the EU have also joined NATO. And that Ukraine has been more and more vociferous, more clear about wanting those twin uh, futures, as it were. Um, but he also uh, knows that if, if you look at those two, for him, arguably, that means the prospect of having NATO right on his doorstep and the issues that that would raise, as he would say, right. from a security point of view. But uh, 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 Let me get at that, because yeah. I think that's, that's key. That's something that that you made me think of. So if, uh, you know, if we're looking at what his attitudes are towards the West and democracy, does he understand, the line from Putin is, can't have NATO on our borders, it's dangerous, it's a security risk, a defensive alliance. So does he really believe it's a security risk or is that a convenient way of the case that he tries to make to his people? I think it's about the case he makes to his people. I think uh, you're absolutely right. He knows very well what NATO is. You know, he was part of discussions with NATO way back when he first right. became president. Um, and in those discussions, he understood very well. And the Partnership for Peace was about talking to Russia and so on. All sorts of possibilities were available, if you like, for the dialogue that needed to take place between NATO and, and Russia. So I don't think it's uh, the real reason behind what's going on, um, but it's of course something that he can use to say, well, look, we'd have all of these right. missiles lined up on our border. So uh, let's get to the gossipy part of, uh, of the interview. Vladimir Putin, what's he like? Is he charming? Is he arrogant? Is he funny? What's Vladimir Putin like? So he's somebody who leaves you in no doubt that he's the most powerful person, in his view, mm -hmm. in the room. And certainly on the Russian side of any discussion, there he is. He's often noted for being late to meetings, the, the sort of the, the entrance. Um, and although he doesn't make a grand entrance of any real kind, there's no question that by turning up when he chooses to, look, I have to look at your watch and he wants you to be looking at your watch. Well, he keeps people waiting for hours on occasion or he'll shift the timing of a meeting. I've been in Russia waiting for meetings to start only to discover that something has come up and he will be several hours later for our meetings. Um, that's not unusual. So he uses time mm -hmm. very clearly to his advantage. He often in a meeting will appear to only be half listening, but he never misses anything. And I've seen him kind of pick up on things where if, if it's a conversation where perhaps the thing that you've just said is the thing that you are least confident about, that will be the one he remembers and asks you about. So he's very uh, observant and very clear. And he puts across what he wants to say very clearly, very to the point. Uh, and absolutely determined to get his message across. I've had uh, uh, some people describe his 
abilities as those of a predator. He can sense weakness and sense uh, opening, and that's what he focuses on. I think that's right, but it's not predator in the sense of, you know, trying to attack you. It's it's much more about what you say and what it is that he's kind of focusing on. Um, in my experience, I was often talking about the Iran nuclear negotiations because obviously he was talking to the presidents of Europe directly. I was there as the, the, the foreign minister level, but I would be asked to talk about that. And on that subject, we were all on the same team, as it were. Mm -hmm. So it was a different conversation. Mm -hmm. uh, and one saw the, the slightly different side of, of him uh, in that context. But no question, he was always listening, always aware of what was being said, and always determined to get his points across and pick you up on the things that he thought you were less sure about. You tell jokes? Does he make small talk? Some small talk. For sure. Uh, I don't remember jokes, but then that may be just be I, I don't remember or more likely that not that kind of meeting. Right. Um, certainly uh, he was courteous. Uh, he would, you know, we would often be meeting whether it would be dinner or food involved. And there was always an attempt to have a reasonably pleasant atmosphere. But these occasions could also turn into an opportunity for him to get his case across very, very pointedly mm. and for him to show that he didn't really see why we thought, uh, in this case, the European Union right. was, in a sense, uh, a partner. Interesting. Uh, of course, he makes a big show to his people of riding, you know, shirt off, bareback on horses, uh, very much the He-Man image. Does he try that same thing with his foreign guests? Or is this for domestic consumption? Right? I think that's for domestic consumption. Again, you don't need to be in any doubt that he's the most powerful person coming into the room in the Kremlin or when he arrives off his plane to a meeting that you, you're having with him or indeed at an event where he will be present. We all know when he's there. <laughs> uh, you had mentioned something earlier that I think is, is fascinating. Uh, European attitudes and that uh, Putin may have underestimated how well NATO, Europe, the transatlantic alliance would hold together in the face of the steps that he's taken. Um, how do you think European attitudes have shifted uh, from months ago, perhaps some warnings that Putin might be making his moves to increasing signs that he was serious to the invasion and now to uh, one person's opinion, my opinion, clear evidence of war crimes. Uh, how have European attitudes changed along the way? And are those attitudes, those changes lasting or is this, this is a chapter and we'll be having a different conversation in a couple of years? So for Europe, you know, we're on the same landmass. So there's always been an attempt to try and develop the right kind of links with Russia, economic links, people-to-people -people links, and so on. And I think a few months ago, if you'd asked most Europeans, practically anyone, are we going to see a, a war in Ukraine? Is he going to invade? Practically everyone would have said no. That there might be a lot of, you know, saber-rattling. Right. He might build up troops. He might do something in 
Luhansk and Donetsk. He might reinforce things in Crimea, but he would not try and take the country for all sorts of reasons, mm -hmm. not least how challenging it is not just to take a country, but to hold a country. So I think the first thing to say is that attitudes have shifted because he's done what people thought he wouldn't do. Mm -hmm. I think secondly, we're all watching what's going on in right. Ukraine. Uh, lots of examples where they're blowing up residential blocks, hospitals, the horror of seeing people fleeing across the border, trying to get away, and President Zelensky broadcasting from Kiev, where he's decided and determined to stay, right. uh, and showing everyone and telling everyone what's going on. So I think attitudes have hardened, and I don't think they'll change. I don't think they'll change. Uh, and we've talked about it previously, but my own mother grew up in London during the Blitz, and so those are very vivid memories. Yeah. Uh, do Is this conjuring up memories for Europeans, particularly uh, Brits, with what they're seeing on TV? Does this remind them of some of the horrors of war not all that long ago? I think to contemplate war on the European mainland again for many people is terrible. It's just awful to contemplate. And I think it's why you're seeing not just governments trying to do something, but the amount of money being raised from ordinary citizens I mean, in the, right. in the UK, it was, I think, 85 million in three days. Huge amounts of money because there's an outpouring of understanding just how dreadful and appalling this is. Uh, we were talking about European attitudes. Of course, one of the ways we can measure those attitudes, we have countries that had played, uh, uh, had kept the EU or NATO at a distance. All of a sudden, it's looking a little bit more attractive. Uh, Finland being one. Uh, is that something that you're seeing and is that real? Are, are we going to see a continued push? And from your vantage point, what will the reaction be by the EU and by NATO? Will this change how they view potential applicants and members? So the, the EU has always been hugely attractive to the countries around them, not least because of the economic benefits of being part of it. Mm -hmm. And for countries such as the Western Balkans, for you've got membership applications in right. for many of them who want to be part of it. You've got Croatia and Slovenia already there. So it, it's attractive because of the economics. It's attractive because there's a sense of peace and security built on that. And then next to that, you've got NATO and the alliance that is defensive, that is there to support people and Article 5, you know, which is the guarantee to each that we stand together. So I think what we're gonna see in the future is an increasing understanding that these groupings of countries willing to pull together, willing to stand together, is the way forward when confronted with the kind of aggression that we did not expect to see mm -hmm. again. And having seen it again, I think it will affect both how these two organizations develop, but also how people view them as being the potential shelter or the, the sustainability for not just a military alliance and an economic alliance, but for the values that we hold. So some of the countries that are looking to join NATO, again, uh, point to countries like Finland, uh, 
do we think that will continue and they will actually join NATO? And it, would you agree that that may be the most uh, significant way to frustrate Vladimir Putin is to not only uh, see him fail in keeping countries like Ukraine from looking westward, but to actually see NATO grow in stature and in, actually in scale and scope? Well, I think he didn't expect that the consequences of what he's done would be that NATO and the European Union would be stronger. He thought, I'm pretty confident, that they were weaker, certainly the EU, that they would be in disarray, that they would not be able to agree. And he thought that there was less uh, cohesion in NATO for all sorts of different reasons. And what he's found is the opposite. I don't know if in the end, countries like Finland will decide to join. They will have to make a decision. You know, there are lots of reasons why they, in historical It isn't terms, a light switch going on and off and yeah. Right, but you can see why this has made them think about it and why that debate is going on, even if the conclusion of it ends up being that they prefer not to, I don't know. But you will inevitably see countries now saying, actually, we need to now contemplate more with a, with a kind of eye to the future as well as to the present, what we should be doing and indeed whether we should be becoming part of either the European Union or NATO. Uh, there's a lot of talk about Vladimir Putin's sense of history. Uh, as we all know, he, he has a sense of, of Russian aggrievement, uh, uh, numerous grievances in his mind, but also his own place in history. Uh, first off, do you think that's true? And then secondly, then if two million Ukrainians are on the move and fleeing, and if in fact the stories are getting out there about the I mean, terrible atrocities, truly inhuman atrocities, can that really be the sense of history that he wants? Can that really be um, you know, how he wishes to be remembered? It, it, not just a Russian leader, but uh, Stalin, right? Or Hitler. Um, so uh, that sense of history, what do you think? I think he definitely has a sense of history and the, the historical uh, way that Russia was, you know, that this was a great empire. I think that's how he wants it to be uh, seen now, a serious country taken seriously. And he wants to have huge influence over the countries around him. Uh, and we've seen that with what's happened in Belarus and we've seen that with Kazakhstan and others where Russia's playing the role of being, as he would see it, right. uh, sure. his words, the peacemaker. In, in that sense, not our words. So, but, but he doesn't, but I don't think he thought, um, it's hard because getting yeah, inside his mind sure. is very difficult, right. but I don't think he anticipated that this would be what would happen. I think he either anticipated there would be little resistance in Ukraine, that President Zelensky would leave, that he would very quickly be able to put in a government that suited him, sure. and that he wouldn't need to have Russian troops in there for very long, and that the West would kind of accept that because there would be limited loss of life and because we wouldn't be able to find ways to come together and oppose it. I guess that's what he thought would happen, but I don't know. He must have contemplated with his uh, the people around him 
with the advice he got, that this could be where he would be. Is he getting advice? I don't know. Yeah. So, um, respected, maybe feared, those would be things that he could live with. Hated? Despised? Yeah, difficult. I mean, a lot of this will, of course, come down to domestic politics and the domestic audience. And presently, people are being cut off from sources of information. Right. But as wounded soldiers come home, as information comes back into Russia, as those who died are returned, um, and as people keep in touch with their relatives and friends in Ukraine and elsewhere, then information, as we know, seeps into communities and spreads like wildfire. And I think that is going to be um, of enormous significance because that, in a sense, is where the legacy comes from. So I saw something the other day. The polling in Russia still shows him quite popular and popular support for what he's doing. But of course, they don't know what he's doing. Um, uh, polling shows that they believe they're liberators and they're therefore doing a, a, a worthy cause. But it, it, maybe it's true that that works fine if it's over in a weekend and everybody comes back and you have a few beers. And But here, as people don't come back or come back maimed and wounded, and certainly uh, as human beings traumatized, you can't help but be yeah. traumatized, that uh, that's when the undoing comes. Is it perhaps his calculation that um, he can score victory before that, before the chickens come home to roost? I think he certainly started from that. I, I find it hard to imagine that this is where they wanted to be because, you know, things are not going well. Right. Um, and that he thought this would be a, you know, a quick get into Ukraine, Zelensky disappears, take Kiev, put in the government, leave. I mean, right. bloodly, uh, with, you know, the victory parades and so on to follow. I don't imagine that this is what they thought would happen. Um, and so he will be approaching, you know, how he is seen from that perspective. The fact that they're cutting off so much information flow is an indication that they don't want people to hear the truth and to find out what's going on um, because they're worried about what that would mean. That as long as they can just put out their version of events, that it's Ukrainian forces that are creating the damage, they are there as liberators, then of course their popularity will remain relatively high from those who either choose to believe it or have no other sources to disbelieve it. But that will change. So what do you think the lasting, I mean, I'm setting aside for a moment the humanitarian catastrophe, the lasting impacts are for European politics. So five years from now, 10 years from now, how do you think all of this will shape the future of European politics? So I think you will find Germany playing a much stronger role. We've already seen that Chancellor And, and would Schultz, you agree that the decision regarding Nord Stream 2 and the willingness to up their yeah. defense contributions, that those are the most significant developments in some way in the European response to Putin? I suppose the most surprising developments in a way. I mean, I think Nord Stream 2 was gradually becoming uh, impossible to imagine going mm -hmm. forward. 
but it was a kind of slow process to that. But certainly for Germany to dramatically change its position on defence spending is an indication of just how seriously they take this. This is a new government and a new chancellor, and right. this has happened within a very short time of his election. Yeah, you, so a, you become difficult chancellor, thing. and oh, by the way, Vladimir Putin's coming. Right. I mean, right. It, you know, and as a new chancellor, you're holding a coalition government together right. in extraordinary circumstances. And you're also trying to read your own public opinion from a position of being new in the job. Uh, that's quite a challenging thing to do. So dramatic and, and surprising because it was so determined when he, mm -hmm. when he uh, put forward his views and decided to great applause in the Bundestag, that's what he was going to do. So I think that's the most dramatic. But I think more generally... I think you'll see a greater cohesion mm -hmm. across Europe now because this has brought everyone together and it will be a source of concern for some time to come, right. certainly as long as we've got President Putin in office. So the Germans uh, have also made clear that they aren't walking away from their business relationships because they are many and they're very integrated with Russian businesses and, and business persons. Uh, do you see it moving to in a direction where even that will become untenable for the Germans and they'll have to switch unofficial positions on those business relationships? I think if the war goes on and the continuation, as you described it, this mm -hmm. dreadful humanitarian catastrophe, then I think it's going to become harder and harder to keep any integration uh, within within and between Germany and, and Russia and other countries too, because it's going to become much less acceptable. Mm -hmm. If there is a solution, if discussions that are going on, if negotiations can find a way through this, then one of the things that will be important will be looking to the longer term future of relationships with the Russian people, because there are millions of Russians for whom this is not what they want. There are thousands in prison already for having protested against it. And we've got to keep in mind that relationship too mm -hmm. with those ordinary Russians for whom this is not in their name. You opened the door when you talked about um, a way through this, a negotiated way through this. What could that possibly be if, if Putin has said it's a war of liberation, that they're denazifying Ukraine, so what could possibly be acceptable that he could go back and say, you know, we got what we needed, we're all done here? Well, I think that's right. I think it's impossible to imagine right now. And one of the most important things is that this is for President Zelensky to determine for his people and his country. They have already suffered enormously. Any solutions have to be driven by him with help and support from all those who can give it from all the countries and the advice and, and expertise that's available. But ultimately, he needs to be able to continue to chart the course of his country and for people to feel that this was about stopping the fighting and right. finding a way to get to a better future than we're currently seeing in these dreadful circumstances of the present. Well, and, and isn't that the other notable thing in all this? Just as Putin had off-ramps, Zelensky has had off-ramps. He could say, you're right, we give up on NATO. And has been rock solid and made, in fact, if anything, doubled down on the importance of what he hopes to see for his people. And he, he too has a difficult off-ramp if the 
going to have a negotiated settlement. That's right. But stopping wars and dealing with people with whom you have found yourself in these terrible conflicts is what negotiations are about. It's about, you know, enemies. Right. It's about people that you despise. You don't it's have about to negotiate you with friends. Expect. You don't negotiate with your friends. Well, you do every day, actually, yeah, but, but you don't negotiate yeah. in these kind of not circumstances. Like yeah. You know, and that's the point, and that's why you need to be able to have the kind of detailed working through, you know, bit by bit, finding ways to, first of all, stop people being killed, right. stop people being injured, stop the fighting. Um, Last question. Um, one of my fears has always been the populist backlash to immigrants, uh, forced migrants, those who were forced to flee. Everyone welcomes forced migrants, those fleeing war early on because our heart breaks for them. But after a while, if we're not careful, populism, anti-immigrant sentiments can rear their ugly head. As we sit here today, it's 2.1 million, I believe. Those are serious numbers. These are significant numbers of poor men, women, and children who are fleeing just to get some semblance of a, of a, of a life. But that's going to change those dynamics as well. And isn't there a risk there, if we're not careful, that that could be a, a result of all this? I really hope not. Yeah. And I really hope that because of the way that people have been received and welcomed, that there is an understanding that this could be for the longer term. You know, people fleeing conflict and war, and you know this better, yeah. than, better than anyone, they don't want to be in your country. They want to be at home right. and they want to get back home. But while they're with you, they need opportunities. They need education for kids. They need jobs. They need to be able to feel the dignity and respect of being able to participate in the societies they find themselves in. But we have a lot to do in this conflict, and I would argue conflicts across the world, to really work out strategies and plans for how we welcome and how we support and how we recognize and understand the needs of those who flee um, and who flee particularly conflict and war and help them to get a better life and help them eventually, hopefully, to go home. Uh, obviously, I couldn't agree with you more. I entirely share those sentiments. And maybe that's a, a good place to wind up because, as you mentioned, uh, the outpouring of support and uh, the remarkable outpouring of resources. Europe's come together. The West has come together, uh, both out of a sense of, of supporting Ukrainian aspirations, but just humanitarian concern and caring about your fellow man and fellow woman. So maybe that's... Uh, that's something good that comes from all this, is reawakening that sense of humanity. I hope so. Uh, I do as well, Baroness. Kathy, it's great to see you. Thank you. Thank Very you. much appreciated. And that's been Hindsight Up Front Ukraine. Again, to access our materials and the different events that we've done, please go to wilsoncenter.org backslash hindsight Ukraine.